Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We're going to talk this week about a topic that we come to with some regularity, and that's the whole subject of transitions. We know it's a big, big deal in this last third of your life. You're trying to make these decisions. Do I stay? Do I go? If I go, where do I go? Um, you know, If I stay and something happens, can I deal with that? All those questions. So we try to look for people who are authorities in this field, and it turns out there aren't a lot. There aren't a lot of people who who really approach from a from about thirty thousand feet this subject, so that we can consider all the options. Usually, like there's a there's somebody who might be able to answer your questions if you're talking about specifically a nursing home. Often, it's somebody in the health profession. There's probably somebody who's available to answer questions if you're thinking specifically about independent living or an apartment or moving to another city, perhaps in the south. Um, but rarely can we find somebody who can speak very broadly about this subject. Should you move or should you not? And then if you should, where and how? So we have a guest, it turns out, a guest, in fact, that has been on this show before. Those of you who remember from September last year. September of last year, that's correct. Yes. Uh, David Smith is fortunately with us again to share his wisdom. He, in fact, has written a book I think since we last talked, we'll talk a little bit about this book too. So why don't you do a proper introduction here? Yes, David A. Smith. He's the author of It's About Time, and he brought us a copy. Thank you so much. And he's also, uh, he co-founded and continues to manage uh, the Gateworths communities in St. Louis. Welcome back, David. Thank you, Jill and Joe. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I just thought of what you could have added to this title, perhaps as a subtitle, and I'm curious how many people watching would get this. It's about time. It's about space. I like that. What, does that ring a bell with anybody? Does that ring a bell with you, yeah. David? Yeah, I like a, it. A TV series that was on, I, I guess I'm perhaps may, maybe one of a handful of people that watched this series that was on in the late 60s. And it was, I think it was called It's About Time, It's About Space. But space used in that title was it was a, one of these shows like Lost in Space. Love Lost in Space. Yeah, yeah. Space <laughs> here would be used in a different way because that's really what you're talking about. It's Downsizing. About, you know, is it about time to think about should your space be where you are? Should it be someplace different? I love it. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. So tell me, how did you enter into this expertise? I know you worked for a long time with with uh, communities such as Gatesworth, which is a very prominent name in the St. Louis area, yeah, and so, others. Yeah, so I have a disability like yourself. I practiced law for 10 years. <laughs> it's a real <laughs> handicap, isn't it? I've well, never heard it put that way before. It's how I learned about the world um, and expanded my horizons in terms of how I thought about life and business and had a vocabulary and a set of tools that I could earn a living with. 
And it came a point in my life when I wanted really something that was a little more heroic. I thought practicing law was going to be heroic, but it turned out I was mostly fighting over money, and I was pretty good at it. I had a lot of clients. So you thought you were going to be like Atticus Finch and Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah. That's the ideal many people have. One of my favorite books, by the way. Yeah, or The Defenders in the old days. If you remember, all the TV shows in the old days about lawyers were always— They were always defending. Perry Mason. Perry Mason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's Mm. what I thought. And then I wound up being pretty good at drafting leases and contracts and doing some simple litigation. But it really wasn't— getting in my heart, my intrinsic Not sense fulfilling. of value. So how old were you when you made a transition from the legal profession? I was 35. Okay. And I was fortunate. I had um, in-laws who were in a position to help uh, fund some equity. So I was able to sort of jump out and take a chance. And then my father had actually const- been involved with the board of constructing one of the first not-for-profit HUD-subsidized communities for for the elderly here in St. Louis at the JCCA campus. And I watched what it did for people without means, all of the different benefits that they got in terms of socialization and convenience and access to health care, transportation. And that's in the, by the Creve Corps campus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And actually, they just underwent a uh, an, ex, uh, an expansion. I've seen those, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I thought to myself, wow, this is so interesting in terms of the impact on these people's lives. I wonder if you could do the same thing for people who have a little bit, who are maybe did, did, middle did you class for, or— did you foresee, though, this demographic tidal wave that was coming that, you know, we're, we're going to have a lot of older people in decades to come? I mean, were you that farsighted in this so, decision? So so here's the funny part about that. Yes, and it wasn't particularly helpful because that age wave that was promised back in 1985 when I got started is just now about to hit 35 years later. Wow. Why, why is that? Because people waited to retire? Well, so if you look at the demographics, there's a, there was a, over, over time, there's in general a very large expansion, right? But if you look at it closer, there's peaks and valleys. And the real peak, the growth from the baby boomers is just about to start. And you know, David, mm. the perception has changed with retirement communities. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. People would often think, okay, this is an old folks home or something like that. But yeah. these retirement communities, they're like they are they're a resort really. Yeah. So I start the book with what most people's preconceived notions, that is to say our own elders, what they experienced to say was they were growing up with their loved ones, they had very bad choices. They were institutional. Yeah. Sure. Because most people didn't live that long. Yeah, they were run by the church or by the state. They were, um, weren't even licensed until the mid-1960s when Medicare and Medicaid came along. Um, so they were just large homes with staff that would help take care of old people. Yeah. And you would only go there under the worst circumstances. Yeah, where there was no alternative. And it was kind of like a one-size-fits-all. One-size-fits-all. Not tailored to the different needs or desires of what you want. Very institutional. And, and so I think the early stages, if not all stages of the baby boomers, that's the impression clearly they grew up with. I'm wondering, though, if the 
if the last phases of the baby boomers, those who are youngest, will still view it that way. Do you see any change taking place? I do. I do. And I have seen change over time. More, more and more people now have the experience through their own lives of having a loved one at, um, live and reside in one of these communities that are very upscale, that have a variety of amenities, that have a lot of personal choice, that are residential instead of institutional, have service staff. Um, and so the notion is changing. It's, it's still changing slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, and it's just now bleeding into our culture. So there is, though, this emotional attachment, irrespective of age and irrespective of perspective regarding these great options. Some people, I suspect, who even understand that there are some really cool communities out there mm-hmm. still have this attachment to their home or to living in a place that I guess is familiar to them. How do you how do you explain that phenomenon? Yeah, I think um, that's absolutely true. I think part of that's cultural. I think it's different here than it is in other places in the world. I would agree. We're nesters here. We're nesters, and we were taught fee simple absolute is everything. Right. Own your own home. Own your own yeah, home. Yeah. That's your declaration of independence. And then the home over time for all of us becomes a repository, right, of our memories, of our accomplishments, mm-hmm. of our um, sense of self-worth. Yeah. And that's the part that's really sticky. Even when the home no longer fits the needs of the person who's living there. Yeah. And a familiarity. Familiarity. Well, and I think, too, often when people lose a spouse, they're even more resistant to leaving because that home holds the memories with that spouse. And they don't mm-hmm. want to move past that. They don't want to move on. Do you find that to be true, That you know, with seniors you've dealt with? Yeah. So so not only yes, but I could list a hundred things that you could add to that list. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of us resist change by nature, um, mm-hmm. even though change is the only constant that we have. True. And probably but more so as we age. More so as we age and significant life change even more. So a change at this stage of your life, you, there's no turning back from it really. There's no recovery time, no runway left. And it's a change that impacts every dimension of one's life, especially as you age. So how should um, adult children or the the older person, him or herself, how should they approach this subject in thinking about whether a change is appropriate? So... So most of the people that we deal with, and I've dealt with thousands across the U.S. and Canada and a little bit in the U.K., and it's interesting, it's people in different geographies and different places tend to deal with it more alike, more like each other than differently, unique to the individual, but there's a lot of commonality which has to do with the resistance to change. So ideally... Most of the people that I have dealt with over the years could solve the problem if they were dealing with it logically. I mean, cut out the emotion? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just look at what the logical options are and choices and reasons. And just as they've solved problems throughout their lives, could understand what would be the best environment for them to spend the last chapter in or the next chapter in. Now, I can see, though, their children doing that sometimes better than the parents. So let's assume 
that the child does this sort of analysis that you're describing. Yes. Which I do think the child is often in a better position. And it sounds condescending, but often when we age, sometimes we're not capable of doing as good of analysis as we would have done 20 years before. So if a child sees that clearly mom or dad needs to make this move, and there are lots of good reasons for it, what do you suggest that, how do you suggest that that child approach the subject with their parents? Yeah, great question, and it's happening all the time. And many of the inquiries we get, even for independent living, start off with an adult child who's concerned about what's going on with their parent. It is true that as we age, the prefrontal cortex shrinks. So our ability to multitask, to use reason and logic diminishes at the same time that other parts of the brain expand and our ability to associate, right, and to find themes and values throughout our lives across time and space, right, and associate actually gets increases. So the idea would be for the adult child to realize that they're communicating with someone whose brain is in a different place developmentally. Author David Soley, S-O-L-I-E, How to Communicate with Seniors, really broke open that subject matter and um, is is worth looking up. He's got a great blog post as well Uh as a book on that. So um, that approach, though, may involve then um, a discussion in which perhaps some of the options are, are shown to the parent. Uh, maybe part of the resistance might be a fear that that there's not a good or safe place available. I suspect that often an approach, a first step, may be getting a parent to go look, would you say? So the issue is this. The adult child is in an unusual situation because they wind up bearing the burden of the infirmities of old age and the inconveniences and transportation issues and who has to show up to the doctor? Am I going grocery shopping? What are the things that I need to do? They have a high urgency because of their own life to try to resolve the inconvenience of having to attend to a parent at that stage. Right. When there are many times also taking care of their own children. That sandwich generation, I guess you would call it. Exactly. The the sandwich generation. And so their perspective is functionally, how would I solve this if this was one of my kids? If I could just dictate the result, what would be the rational thing to do? The problem is, is that the older adult who's experiencing this, who's going through the, the um, process, has a completely different reaction, is trying desperately to hold on to control of whatever they can hold on to, um, and doesn't want to give up right? The familiarity, the Mm -hmm. sense of legacy that exists by staying right where they are. And I think, too, the sense of independence that they have. They think they're losing their independence. And and they're not, though, going into a retirement community. Yeah. I I mean, so, Jill, that's exactly um, correct. To me, independence means the ability to exercise choice. Yeah. And options, right? When they're presented to you. That's what we think of it in a political sense. That's how I think of it as an interpersonal sense. When people move into a community, and again, it it would have to be a community that I'd feel comfortable putting my mom in or that 
I'd feel good about, but there's lots and lots of those, most of them. In the communities, they have far more independence in many cases than they do staying in their home that no longer suits their needs. The right. architecture wasn't designed for them. The bedrooms aren't in the right place. The washer and the dryer is in the basement. Um, you know, a lot of things are required of Their them. Their bedroom's a, upstairs, so they have to climb stairs. Yeah. Which could result in a fall, you know, the older we get. Yeah, so a lot of different risks and things that really... People, when we first buy, when we buy our first home, we're not thinking, how will this work for me when I'm 80? True. Mm-hmm. And nor True. should you have to. No. Nor I mean, should you have to. I mean, because there probably isn't a single product that's going to take you through all the phases of your life, you know, perfectly. Yeah. Not even so, well. And yeah. that's where the reason and logic comes in versus the emotion, the emotional attachment to hold on to control as long as we can. And so I guess I feel this ambivalence in this conversation because I know that there are people, my mother's one of them, who, you know, she would nod her head in agreement. She has clarity. She's not as analytical as she was at one time, but for reasons you described. But but she has clarity, and, and she lives on her own. My brother lives nearby, like 100 yards away. And she's made clear that, yeah, I understand there are nice places. I think she's seen some of them when she, she lived in, Naples area for a while. Uh, but she says, I want to stay in my home, and I want you all to keep me here as long as you possibly can. Yes. Promise so, me that you'll keep me here as long as you possibly I can. I mean, that's kind of the message. And so— Don't put me in one of those places. And and so, you know, mom, my mother is one of those, though, who, who knows that there are nice places, but she still says, I want to be home. So I wonder if that's ever going to completely change. Because I'm I'm with you, and I think you hold this view, and I've said this many times on this show. I think there are such incredible places to go. And my wife and I have talked about it. We, we've seen some of these in Naples, and I don't feel like I should have to wait until, you know, there's some need. I, would, I, I could imagine if my wife were to pass away and it were up to me, I could see myself moving into an independent living place that had lots of cool features, luxury, and you the know. socializing aspect yeah. oh, of the, it. Yeah, the social I aspect. I love that. I love that. The, the socialization is there when you want it. Yeah. And if you don't, you have a private residence and a place to retreat to. Yeah, exactly. like, a, like an apartment. It's an apartment condo. Um, I filled some places up in Naples. There's some beautiful places there. Yeah, yeah. We, we both like Naples, and so we spend some time down there. So then I, I would like to transition a little bit in our discussion because there's so much to cover here, and I'm wanting to try to do it in less than an hour. I know one thing that, that I know people want us to get to is a discussion about when you – let's assume that you get mom or dad. We'll assume it, that maybe the parents are not initiating it. Maybe they are. But it begins with looking at some places. You are specially positioned as somebody who's been inside the industry – and so you're an authority on this subject, the different options that exist. You know, for, for someone to have, uh, for us to be able to get your opinion regarding how that's approached, things to look for, uh, things that might be red flags, uh, can you just kind of lay, uh, you know, go where you want on that topic? I, I don't want to be a contrarian, but I would suggest to you that if I were to work with your mom or someone like your mom, um, the first thing I would do is try to discourage her from coming to visit. Hmm. Wow. And instead, I would see if she would allow me to come visit her. 
That's an interesting Kind of reverse psychology method, huh? Sort of. But when you think about it, so only about 10% of the people who would benefit from moving to one of these communities, right, with all the different kinds of features and amenities and programs that you've described, only about 10% will ever move. And I'm talking about of the people that all three of us, it wouldn't even be close. We would say, yes, this one should. We're not sure about that one. But of the ones we were absolutely sure for logical reasons would be better off moving, less than 10% will move. So you might as well, since 90% of the people who you're trying to motivate to move and to change, right, for their own good, live in their own home, why not go see the competition? Hmm. Why not mm-hmm. go to the scene of the crime? And why not go right <laughs> where the repository of those memories are? And actually, we, you know, we all say in the senior housing industry, all the different companies and the brands say, we want you to be part of our family and come to see us at our home. Well, I say, okay, let's see if we qualify to be part of your family. Let's see what your family's like. Who are you? Yeah. And it ties right into the psychology of change. And the way that you can help motivate change is to start from the position of understanding, accepting, uh, validating where someone lives now and what it is that they gain from being there. What would they be giving up? Yeah, yeah. And and let's assume, though, that that the you get to the point where the person is, is amenable to a transition. So walk us through how you would go about the process. We've already gotten over the hurdle of should the person do it. Let's assume somebody's inclined to do it. So I can tell you that pre-COVID, that probably happened to me in 35 years less than 10 times in independent living. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Post-COVID, we're seeing it two or three times a month just at our anecdotally at our property so Here then, in St. Louis. Uh, but you're talking about somebody saying that... Even then, seven out of ten times, it's not. So tell me how it is normally. Normally, if you can get someone, if you can help someone reach the conclusion themselves, think about what we do as being the guide and the prospect or the person who would actually live there being mm-hmm. the driver. And so we're there to provide the map and the guidance. Okay. If somebody already says, I'm ready to think about moving into one of these places, help me decide which is the best place, why I'd go to this place or that. Okay. That's the easiest part. Let, let's go then to that part. Anybody can do that part. No, I don't. I mean, I tell, I want to get to the part where we're talking about when you look at a facility, you know, what are, what are some of the, the red flags? What are some of the things you should consider? Give us that insider's perspective when somebody has decided that they're going to look at a community. Yeah. And again, this is the easiest part. And this is where most people who are in the senior living industry focus because they've learned from real estate and they've learned from other um, demand-driven products where the question is, should I move to your place or should I move to your place, right? If I can help the person decide to make a move, I call that the weather. Mm -hmm. If I can help them decide whether to move, the where becomes tremendously stacked in the advantage of the person who solves the weather issue. Does that make sense? Because the greatest differentiator you have is you actually care about the person more than the product or the Mm -hmm. solution. No, I I can see that. But to answer your question, okay, you want to look at the, um, just the overall um, 
functionality? What what amenities and programs and services are there as compared to what the individual who I'm trying to represent and guide, what do they want? What, what their interests are, yeah. their hobbies. So yeah. a good starting point is to identify what are the things that give the this person the most pleasure. Is it golf? Yeah. You know, is right. it bridge? And whether it's pleasure and or just a sense of well-being and satisfaction and contentment. Right, so yeah. it doesn't have to be joy necessarily, but what fulfills the needs that they have—emotional, psychological, and aspirational. So that list, I can I can see where preparing that list is probably the first step when somebody's decided they want to move and or they're open to this idea. If I can help, whether it's your mom or whoever the prospect is, right? If I can help them identify that list, I've gone a long way towards helping them get ready because that's the hardest part. So um, I'm, I'm thinking of things as we're talking here, like if they are affiliated with a religious denomination, mm-hmm. you know, is there a temple, is there a church, sure. mosque, whatever. Are there services? Will they, if they're, they don't have that, will they take you to services? What is the cost? What's the floor plans look like? Is the place clean? What's the variety of choices that any mm-hmm. individual resident has on a particular day, Right. To satisfy whether it's their intellectual, their physical needs, whether it's um, recreational, what's going on? What about location being close to uh, their children? So their children, you know, it's easy for them to visit. Does that come into play, I would think? It does, much as like selecting an individual home. But it becomes less important because the amenities and the trappings around the community broaden the geography I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but if yeah. you're going to buy a home in a subdivision, you have lots of choices, and you can pick school district and taxing district and so forth. When you're doing a senior community, they tend to have a large—the good ones have a larger geographical pull. Is it reasonable to to obtain some sort of financial statement from a facility or a company, a provider, to to give some level of confidence that— the project is secure? Is that a question that's asked very often? Not very often. I think it's very appropriate. There are some companies in our industry now um, that are struggling, and that would be good to know. It's particularly useful in um, a buy-in or a a refundable entry fee community because Mm -hmm. they're holding the entry fee, sometimes in escrow, oftentimes not, depends on the state law. It's treated like an insurance purchase, right? So I would definitely suggest that you look into their financial viability. And which model which model do you see more commonly now? I was reading that somewhere it's been a while where the heavy fee, the front end load was tending to to become less popular because people a number of companies were willing to say, look, just move in and commit to a monthly payment. We give you flexibility. And as a result, you're seeing less emphasis on the large front-end payment. Yeah, I haven't studied that as much from an industry trending perspective, but that's, uh, again, in my own personal experience, that's what I'm noticing. Yeah, and whenever you do have a fee that's refundable, I know that that often there are, uh, it's typical to have conditions. And one of those conditions that we were asked to look at for a client here in St. Louis uh, was that you only got your refund when they had resold your apartment. So by definition, if you're moving out of a place because there are problems, yes, um, 
then that's the very time when you're probably not going to get it because it means it's going to be harder to sell your unit. Yeah. And and so it becomes it really becomes a loop that you can't get out of. So they the company says I'm willing to give you your money, but we've got to sell your unit at a certain price. Yes. Meaning it wasn't just sell it. It had to sell above a certain number. To the extent it fell below that number, then each dollar was reduced from the refund. There's language to that effect that's typical in an agreement in which you're you can obtain some sort of refund. Now I understand why why facilities would want to have such a provision. I mean, it, it, you could see a situation where somebody says, "Well, look, we'll agree to refund, assuming that that we can sell the property." But but if something happens in their they're thinking in from their side of the table, maybe we have no control, and that this property suddenly for catastrophic reasons, an act of God or something, mm-hmm. suddenly the property is of less value, then, then it means we're refunding something when really you made an investment and through no fault of ours, your your real estate, quote unquote, investment went bad. And so- Let me just give you the quick other side of that and then out of fairness, tell you the benefits that I see out of the refundable entry fee. Um, the flip side of that is that if that investment took off and is now worth twice what you paid, you're only going to get back 80% of what you paid. So you're only in it for the downside. Yeah, that's a good okay. point. Yeah, that is. Um, but again, in fairness, and these are very popular models for, especially for younger couples, people who are actually entering the whole world of retirement or senior. When you say younger, be sure and give an age. Because some people are thinking, does he Seven, mean 30s? 70s. Okay. Oh, I thought you were going to say 60s. Okay, 70s. No, for, for, for this show, when we say younger, we mean 60s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fine. I, I know, or and it, Well, they have a new product now. When I say they, the industry is developing a new product called Active Adult that is targeted for 55 and older, which is really for people in their mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a financial benefit to a front-end refundable fee where they reduce your monthly payment, usually not realized till sometime five to seven years after you've lived there. But if you're mm-hmm. going in young enough, the odds are you can beat that. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. Also, it's called active adults? A- well, that's a different... The active adult is a rental model designed to attract younger people than are now living in independent living communities. Like our community is 35 years old here in St. Louis. We've had people living there. We have two, three generations of people from mid to late 60s up to over 100. Right. But the so-called active adult are able to attract just the youngest because people haven't aged in place within the community yet. Very interesting. So um, just one more quick thing, just out of fairness. The other advantage of the buy-in communities is that they typically underwrite your long-term insurance, your health costs. So there will be a reduction or a discount or a guaranteed maximum if you need to go into the assisted living or skilled nursing. And in fact, that's the principal advantage people see to the refundable entry fee. Yeah, so I hope everybody understood that. You just made a really important point uh, that assuming that we're talking about continuing care community. Yes. And uh, that means a community where you move in, you can move in in independent living, and, and then if you need to transition to assisted and then to skilled, skilled care, care, which right. is a nursing home, then you are you have ceilings on what you can be charged by paying this front end. And so Correct. that's a value, particularly in inflationary times. And again, particularly if you're planning in your younger, older age, it's a benefit if you weren't able to buy or you didn't purchase um, uh, long-term care insurance. You can help mitigate the the 
potential catastrophic upside of healthcare costs. Yeah, so you can budget. You can take uh, the amount of income that you know you have or the assets that you have, and I can see a benefit to that because unlike somebody who's 30, we're less worried about the possibility that certain costs may go up because we know that we're nimble enough. We have jobs that were, they yeah. go up, and probably if your housing goes up, your pay and your job is likely to, in inflationary times, we're seeing some of that now. But when you're retired, it's fixed in. There's a reason it's called fixed income. Yes. Exactly. Not, it, 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 it is fixed. And yes. so, so I can see where if you have a balance sheet where you have available $500,000 to pay on the front end mm-hmm. and still have income in exchange for the assurance that prices will not go beyond certain points and, and be covered the whole way, as you point out, yes. into, into skilled care. Even. Yes, that's the attraction. And again, it's a very popular model. David, I was wondering, do you ever get individuals who, okay, agree to go in and they move in? And they're there, say, a month, and they're very homesick and want to go back home. What do you say to them? You know, give it six months and then, you know, maybe make that decision. Is this after they've paid $500,000? Well, no, and not after they paid the $500,000. But let's say they're looking at a rental community. Right. Which is what the majority <laughs> of communities are and is also a very popular model. The And rental is where, just to be clear, it's sure. where you don't obtain any equity. Correct. And you it's just month pay. to month, it's right? It's month to month. Right. And so you're there. Maybe you have to give a couple of months notice or something before you can get out like you would in some apartment leases. Um, but but it, specifically for older people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a rental community. So, And as you move from one level of care to another on the campus, you just pay a different rental amount depending on where the market is for assisted living, memory care, or skilled nursing when you're ready for it if you need it right. in the future. So um, the answer is it rarely have I ever seen it happen. Do you typically see that they're happy and well-adjusted early on? The most common thing I see is that within 30 to 60 days after someone's moved in, they say, I wish I had moved sooner. The light bulb goes off. The emotion is... That's good to know. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I wish I had moved sooner. Uh Uh-huh. You mentioned memory care. That's, That's another factor that I guess people should consider at the threshold. And uh, one thing that we've learned doing this this show is how different memory care is from traditional skilled care, which is a, is a nursing home where they're not set up. They're set up to deal with people who are sick and in bed and have to be hooked up to, you know, lots of complicated equipment and they need nurses and doctors around them. But a nursing home is not set up for somebody who can – may be able to go out and run a mile and yet who's yeah. wandering around and you know may may not be safe to themselves or or whatnot and and at all hours and not just daylight hours so sometimes you see continuing care communities that do not have a memory care facility is there a, is there a trend in the industry to include specifically a facility for people who have dementia yes um, so the reality is is that a very large percentage of current residents of assisted living communities, licensed assisted living across the U.S., I, I've seen numbers 65%, 70% have some form of dementia. It's very common. What's the differentiator in most cases is the programmatic approach. Um, and severity. 
Probably. And, and the severity of the dementia as compared to the physical acuity, the physical, they call them com comorbidities, but whatever else is wrong with you, right? So when we addressed this about 15 years ago, we built a, a purpose-built community called Park Provence. It's here in St. Louis oh, in yeah. Uh huh. Very nice facility. We, yeah, thank you. We did a lot of research. We built five interconnected households. The households, if you're in one and you live one, it looks pretty much the same whichever one you're in. They they're like had, little apartments? Well, there, there are little apartments, but then there's also a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, an activity area, and that's collectively a household. And what we did is we took each one with – this was with a lot of input from the uh, medical folks over at WashU, Dr. David Carr, who's amazing mm – -hmm. Um, and we set up in each of these households a different level of cognitive ability. So there's what's called an Allen scale. And with the Allen scale, you can test functionally to determine if somebody, not that they are five years old, but developmentally, yeah. if they're equivalent to, they, they say we lose developmental capacity in a progressive dementia in the reverse order that we gained it as a child. Okay, I've heard that. So you can classify people based developmentally on what age they are. So we have households that are where programs and activities are directed for 10-year-olds and other ones for 5-year-olds and then other ones for infants. But it's always in transition. Yes, and so that's why we made the households look identical to each other. So as you move from one to the other, we ease what's called transfer trauma. Because it, it looks familiar. It looks familiar. It looks okay. familiar. Yeah. Right. I was... That I, is... I'm in the dining room. This is where I always went to the dining room. That makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So, and then we have a separate household for people who um, have higher physical needs that aren't tied... They, they may have a higher cog cognitive ability, but they have... Co they call them comorbidities, but other illnesses that we need to take care of. Um, so they would be in a different but classification. But not, not at the level of skilled care, not the level of a nursing home. Well, you know, we did to eliminate that issue. We got a, we we licensed the whole thing as skilled. I see. And we operate mm. households as assisted or as skilled, depending on what the level of the physical needs are. So, how many people live in each of these households on average? Roughly twenty. Twenty per okay. Twenty twenty five. So it's mm. a small group, and the st the staff can really get to know individuals. It's like it's like a, a, a collection of group homes under the same roof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how long ago did you all develop that? I think about it's been about fifteen years. Yeah, that's a, that's a great concept. I know similar things are going on in the memory care industry. T totally, and memory care is exploding in terms of attraction, especially post COVID. That's where we've seen the largest growth in demand. Wow. So when people are looking at a continuing care community, yes. they they need to be sensitive to their, their vulnerability, perhaps, to those needs. The, the programming, is there space for purposeful wandering? So one of the characteristics of certain stages of progressive dementia is that people wander. They're aimless in terms of where they're going, but they have a need to be frenetic, to be moving. So are there places where people can just walk around and not get hurt, hurt themselves or others? And mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, and then the programs. So, for example, at Park Provence, we have five parallel programs going all day long. So if you want to do current events and you're in the higher functioning group cognitively, you may spend an hour talking about, you know, um, uh, political events. You might read part of the newspaper. Whereas if in, you're in the group that has less cognition, you'll still do current events, but maybe for 15 minutes with a quick overview on, you know, a very high level because your attention span shorter. And then there, are, I guess, one option though is is for people to say, you know, I'm comfortable making a move now, but I want to move to an independent living facility. And one thing I noticed um, when I a couple that I know and just friends from the town I grew up in, they're living in Florida, Naples area, and they told me that they were moving to a place that they said was a Maybe they call it a nursing home because one is not in very good shape. But I found as I spent time on the phone talking to them and getting kind of the their explanation of events, uh, it became clear to me that this is not a facility that is licensed as a skilled care facility, and which is a nursing home in, in almost every state. Whenever you hear a nursing home, it means a skilled care facility. So I, I point out to them, do you realize that if something happens, you would have to move somewhere else? And they, they said, well, there's a, there's a nursing home nearby, and, and yet there was no relationship. You know, it wasn't what, that what we call a continuing facility, care right. community. Yeah. But they really liked it. It was very affordable. There's no front-end fee, probably for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no substantial front-end fee. So um, it, it, there was a front-end fee, but it wasn't real substantial. So um, that's what they did. And, and I guess some people do choose to move in because it's much easier to get licensure to simply operate an independent living and maybe assisted living facility. The licensure process, which you would know more about, uh, is, is simpler. So it's tempting to not have a nursing home attached. Yeah. So it, I, um, there were no licensed nursing homes till early 70s. Believe it or not, when huh. Medicare really? and Medicaid came into effect in 1968 is when states started licensing them. So I've seen uh, an incredible proliferation of product types over 35 years because there was no standard product. It's all the industry during my career experience has just been totally invented. Um, huh. And people will have multiple levels of care. They'll have a single level of care. They'll just do assisted living. Part of it is driven by the state. Some states have certificate. Almost every state has certificate of need for a nursing home, like yeah. for a hospital. You have to prove there's a need before you can you can build. Yeah, it's kind of a big. Just so people know, it's a big deal to a nursing home. Is your analogy makes sense? Similar to getting approval for a hospital. So it's much easier to just build a. A, a place for older people to live and provide some services, assist them in some way, but don't provide medical care. And c can you point out to people whenever they're, they, they think, well, maybe my loved one or maybe I can live in assisted living and I don't need to go into a, a nursing home, when, when, when the phrase assisted living is included or used in Missouri and most states, it probably means that people can help you move about, but but it wouldn't include administering medication. As yeah, I so it's different in every state. And for example, in Missouri, there's two different licensing levels. One of which 
um, allows a lot more hands-on care and Medicare administration and so forth. But um, the point is, is that each state licenses them differently. Mm. When I worked in Ohio, you could basically run skilled nursing within assisted living. They just had... It depends on how strong the skilled nursing industry is in that particular state, the particular if you ask me, state, politically. Sure. And historically, the federal government wasn't involved because it wasn't paid by Medicaid historically, and I think that's changing. But so the, you know, the Under the Medicaid waiver states, of which there's a half a dozen. Yeah, yeah, and Missouri is one, right? No, Illinois is. Illinois. So one thing, though, to take note of, though, is that if you have a facility that is called assisted living, you you really want to see what the list of things that they provide, and even more importantly, the things they don't provide. Yeah, and the other thing to remember is that a lot of people, the, the names assisted living, and that's the most popular one that people use these days because that's what's used in the investment community. So an adult child's got stock or is looking at the stock market, and they're under the category of assisted living, but it may or may not actually be assisted living under state law. So the terms are not not distinct when it comes to what levels of care you can provide. They're different from state to state. Yeah. Uh, one thing um, is that uh, regardless of the state and where we are, we try not to use the word facility. Oh, that makes sense. Because yeah. that's, that? that's old school. Does it and sound institutional? It is. It, okay, I mean, it yeah. is. I mean, I, I get it that. Is. I understand So we call them communities. 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 That does have a better ring to it. I can understand it, that. Like when we were looking at properties uh, for ourselves, not part of any assisted living facility, but we'd look at condos and things. No one would dare call it a facility. Right. Yeah, don't say the F word. I mean, you, you don't you don't call it a facility <laughs> when you're 30 years old and looking for a condo. You're right. You don't. And you so. don't. And you don't if you're 80 years old and you're totally with it and you're looking to get you know hooked up and um, <laughs> socially and that yeah. makes a lot of sense. In every yeah. other way. Who wants to go into a facility? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you made that point. Uh, time flies when we have you on the show. I know we didn't spend as much time talking about the contents of your most recent book. It's about time, which is a a lot of very practical recommendations that that allow you to look at this whole subject we've talked about from the eyes of people who are insiders in the industry, and, and you get a whole different perspective on it. So it's fresh. It's different from any other book I've seen on this topic. And, and we I'm not, each got a signed copy. Yeah, and incidentally, a disclaimer here, I just got this book today as a gift, <laughs> so I haven't actually read it, but, but we've talked about it a lot. So anyway, uh, David, you're a wonderful guest. We always look forward to having you on. And I really hate to conclude the show now because I know that we want there's some other topics I wanted to talk about some about this projects. whole this whole transition subject, but we try to keep within our time limits. So I promise you, if David's available, we'll have him back on. We'll do another show in the next uh, three to four weeks if that works for everybody's schedule. That'd be great. We can do you by Zoom if we need to. Sure. Okay. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit tuckerallen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.